0: This is Front Page. We here at Front Page, we do our best to dig out the truth and bring it to you. Hello, all you freedom-loving people. Welcome to Front Page Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Cameron Goulet. The Israeli military invited British journalists to accompany them in Gaza to find the tunnel entrances leading to Hamas. The reporter saw firsthand how Hamas uses civilian buildings as shields for themselves. As the left pressures Israel for a ceasefire, Hamas says that they want a permanent war. The turmoil in the Middle East has led some thoughtful elites to recognize the need for a tough leader in the United States, and that person is President Trump. This may be why support for Republican candidates other than President Trump has been falling and RFK Jr. made some sharp comments on the performance of the other Republican candidates. Democrat Joe Manchin has announced that he is not seeking re-election. So is he planning to run for president next? Republicans issued subpoenas to more of Hunter Biden's business associates, including buyers of Hunter's artwork. Okay, let's get into it. The fighting in the Gaza Corridor continued into its 35th day today. Israeli military forces have entered Gaza City, which is the largest Hamas stronghold, and they are clearing tunnels that were constructed by Hamas. Nick Craven, a reporter for the UK's Mail Online, was exclusively invited to join the IDF to witness the Hamas underground city. Israel claims that Hamas routinely builds underground tunnels in densely populated areas of Gaza. The tunnels often have hidden entry points to its network of tunnels that are in schools, mosques, hospitals and other civilian buildings. Craven followed the Israeli army's discovery of at least 17 fortifications. One of the tunnel entrances was also located behind a kindergarten. Craven and other war correspondents met with officers and soldiers of the Negev Brigade in the town of Beit Hanoun at the northern end of the Gaza Corridor. With the exception of Ivry Elbaz, the brigade commander, the Negev Brigade is made up entirely of reservists, including dentists, loan brokers, and students. They are tasked with finding Hamas tunnels. Elbaz describes the tunnels that Hamas has dug as a city beneath a city. The Hamas terrorists will jump out like gophers and shoot before escaping back into the tunnels. Elbas led the journalists to one of the largest tunnel entrances ever found, which is behind a kindergarten. This is an example of Hamas using civilians and infrastructure as human shields. The Negev Brigade have uncovered more than 17 tunnels in one small area. Some of the tunnels are several miles long and they are connected to a larger network of tunnels in the southern part of Gaza City. The tunnels even lead to Israel. Walking into a hospital reveals tunnels with ammunition depots underneath. A door-to-door inspection reveals tunnel after tunnel filled with munitions and documents explaining how to attack Israel and kill its citizens. Israel has been under pressure for a ceasefire. Israel finally agreed to suspend its operations in northern Gaza for four hours a day as of November 9th. But senior Hamas official Khalil al-Hayah has publicly stated that they never intended to govern Gaza and that they want a permanent state of war on the Israeli border. In a series of interviews with the New York Times, al-Hayah defended Hamas's October 7th attack. He said that their goal was to change the entire equation and to bring renewed attention to the Palestinian movement. He said, we succeeded in putting the Palestinian issue back on the table and now no one in the region is experiencing calm. Some hope that this will spark an ongoing conflict that will end any illusion of coexistence between Israel, Gaza, and neighboring countries. Tahir al-Nunu, a Hamas media advisor said, I hope that the state of war with Israel will become permanent on all the borders and that the Arab world will stand with us. In fact, when Hamas launched its attack on October 7th, they were very clear how Israel would fight back. El said, what could change the equation was a great act. And without a doubt, it was known that the reaction to this great act would be big. But he added, we had to tell people that the Palestinian cause would not die. The turmoil in the Middle East has changed the minds of many Americans. Real estate mogul Robert Bigelow was once the largest donor to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' 2024 presidential campaign. He donated over $20 million to the DeSantis campaign earlier this year. He now decided to support President Trump because the security threat posed by the turmoil in the Middle East requires... The strongest commander-in-chief and President Trump is the man for the job. Bigelow told the Financial Times on Wednesday, I've got to look at who would probably be the strongest commander with the most experience. And that's only one guy. President Trump is a kicker if needed to be. Bigelow explained his support for DeSantis in part because of his efforts to resist the COVID-19 embargo and to keep businesses open. But the deteriorating security situation in the Middle East changed his mind. He also disagreed with DeSantis's hardline stance on abortion. DeSantis signed a bill in April banning abortion in Florida in the last six weeks. Judging by the results of Tuesday's election, being too tough on abortion does lose a significant number of votes. Another reason for Bigelow's change of mind is that President Trump's popularity ratings are simply too high. In an interview with the Financial Times, Bigelow called President Trump a bull and DeSantis a dinner. He argued that President Trump's enormous energy makes him hard to beat. He said, I think Trump is too strong. I think Trump has the momentum, the inertia to beat him. Bertie Marcus, the co-founder of Home Depot, also decided to endorse President Trump on Thursday. He argued that President Trump is the simple choice in a high-stakes political world. Marcus wrote in an op-ed for Real Clear Politics that while he is exhausted by politics and he wants the younger generation to take the lead, he realizes that he could not walk away because the stakes are just too high. For Democrats, the choice is simple. If you feel that you are better off now than you were three years ago, you should vote for Joe Biden or whoever the Democrat candidate is. For Republicans, the choice is also simple. Let's face it, Donald Trump is going to win the nomination. You should be doing all you can to ensure his winning the general election. He said the party cannot let his brash style be the reason we walk away from his otherwise excellent stewardship of the United States during his first term in office. Five Republican candidates went toe-to-toe in the third Republican presidential debate on November 8th. While discussing the situation in the Middle East, Vivek Ramaswamy called Nikki Haley Dick Cheney in three-inch heels. And while discussing the use of TikTok, Haley called Ramaswamy a scum. But they couldn't salvage the low ratings of the event. The third GOP debate brought in lower ratings than the previous two with only 4.92 million viewers. According to Nielsen Media Research, over 12.8 million people tuned into the first primary debate and the second one garnered 9.5 million viewers. The back and forth between the candidates and the comments of the other three participants prompted independent candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to mock them in a posting on X. RFK wrote, I'm loving this Republican debate. It's funny watching politicians audition for a job they'll never get. When discussion turned to TikTok, Kennedy wrote on X, these Republicans want to wage war against TikTok, but data privacy isn't just an issue of China getting US consumer data. It's also about keeping data private from our own government and big tech. Doesn't seem like any of the debaters are aware of it. With regard to the Ukraine war and the Middle East war, Kennedy's attitude is that if he were elected president, he would take immediate action to end the Ukraine war. He said that he had a sense of compassion for Ukraine which was illegally invaded by Russian President Vladimir Putin. But he blamed the U.S. for its role in the conflict. He said, We have neglected many, many opportunities to settle this war peacefully. We have turned that nation into a proxy war between Russia and the United States. Kennedy has called the addiction to war one of the big problems we have in our federal government. He also thinks that these Republican candidates do not care about the livelihood issues of the American people. RFK wrote on X, 40 minutes in, and these Republican candidates have only talked about war. What are they going to do to lower your mortgage, your gas prices, your grocery prices? That's why I'm running for president. I'll bring the resources home to make our country strong from the inside out. Of the five candidates, Vivek Ramaswamy's view on war were similar to those of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He called for sacrificing foreign wars and gutting 75% of the federal bureaucracy in order to pay for Social Security. Therefore, Kennedy also has a positive opinion of Ramaswamy. RFK wrote, give credit where credit is due. Vivek Ramaswamy makes some good points on Ukraine. Glad to see some of this awareness in the Republican Party. Ramaswamy also won praise from President Trump. While President Trump rarely has praising words for his competitors, he did show respect for Vivek Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy is seen by some observers as Trump-like. And indeed, Ramaswamy has marketed himself as such. President Trump appreciated it when Ramaswamy praised President Trump about his time in the White House. President Trump said, I sort of like him, you know that. I mean, how can I dislike him? He's so nice. In a statement that was released on November 8th before the Republican debate, Kennedy suggested a three-candidate forum that would also presumably include President Biden and President Trump. RFK claimed, you know, it may seem like a pipe dream, but I'd like to invoke the possibility of a substantive, long-form debate that isn't about exchanging one-liners, scoring points, or insulting the opponent. West Virginia Democratic U.S. Senator Joe Manchin announced on Thursday that he will not run for re-election in 2024. He posted a video on X announcing his decision to not seek re-election. And he acknowledged that as a Senate centrist, He has been under tremendous pressure from both parties. After months of deliberation and long conversation with my family,
1: I believe in my heart of hearts that I have accomplished what I set out to do for West Virginia. I have made one of the toughest decisions of my life and decided that I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. He said that his original intention for entering politics was to serve the public. I got into politics because of an argument I had 40 years ago with my dad. John Manchin owned a furniture store in Farmington, West Virginia, a small coal mining town of hardworking people. And one day our local state representative came in and asked dad for a favor, saying, you owe me for all the things I've done for your little town. When the man left, I turned to my dad and said, now, wait a minute. Isn't helping Farmington that man's job. That moment defined the difference between self-service and public service. When I told my dad that I was going to run for office, he said, Oh Joe, politics is a bad business. I'm telling you right now, stay out of it. I didn't disagree that often with my father, but that time I did. I reminded him of the famous line from President John F. Kennedy's inaugural address, ask
0: not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Since entering politics, he has been true to that original intent, putting the interests of the United States first rather than partisanship. It took him about a minute,
1: but my dad said, that he would support me running if I made a vow to serve all the people, friend or foe, and not just myself. That promise made to my dad all those years ago has been my guiding light. I've never cared about where good ideas came from, and I never blame one side for creating a problem, nor believe that only one side could fix them. When America is at her best, we get things done by putting country before party, working across the aisle, and finding common ground. Many times this approach has landed me in hot water, but
0: the fight to unite has been well worth it. Manchin is considered one of the most bipartisan members of the U.S. Senate. His centrist stance and his strained relationship with his own party have led to much speculation. He'll be traveling around the U.S. next. But what I will be doing is traveling the
1: country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to
0: mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. He has been outspoken about the fact that there is a huge divide between Democrats and Republicans across the country and that Americans are exhausted by partisan rivalries. Every incentive
1: in Washington is designed to make our politics extreme. The growing divide between Democrats and Republicans is paralyzing Congress and worsening our nation's problems. The
0: majority of Americans are just plain worn out. He enumerated the major problems facing the United States. He pointed out that these problems are not caused by any one political party alone, but are shared by all the American people.
1: Our economy is not working for many Americans from the rising cost of food and fuel and everything in between. We have a border crisis with illegal drugs entering our country and killing Americans every day. Our national debt is out of control and Americans don't feel safe, even in their own communities. We are providing critical aid to two of our allies, fighting wars for their survival. And we must prevent being pulled into a major war ourselves. These are not Republican or Democratic challenges. These are American challenges. They affect
0: every one of us and we need to face them together. But he does believe that the American people share common values and they're not as divided as they appear.
1: I know our country isn't as divided as Washington wants us to believe. We share common values of family, freedom, democracy, dignity, and a belief that together we can overcome any challenge. We need to take back America and not let this divisive hatred further pull us apart. So would
0: Joe Manchin consider running for president as a third-party candidate? He did not say But in media interviews, he said he would decide before the end of the year. One day after James Comer subpoenaed Hunter Biden and James Biden for in-person depositions, Comer issued subpoenas to more of Hunter Biden's associates, including the buyers of Hunter's artwork. Additional subpoenas were issued to Hunter Biden's associates, Eric Schwerin and Mervyn Yon, as well as Hunter's art gallerist. George Burgess, and to Elizabeth Neftali, who was the Democrat donor who purchased Hunter's art. Eric Schwerin is Hunter Biden's business partner and the president at Rosemount Seneca Partners. Schwerin visited the White House at least 36 times during the Obama years. Plus, he had a sit-down meeting with Joe Biden. Apparently, he was a trusted member of the Biden family. Schwerin was reportedly responsible for transferring Joe Biden's files to the University of Delaware. He was also involved in the transfer of classified information to Ukraine. According to the New York Post, Hunter Biden's art gallerist, George Burgess, has strong ties to China and he was once arrested for making terrorist threats. The price tags for Hunter's artwork, someone who does not have formal art training ranged from $75,000 for works on paper to $500,000 for large scale paintings. Of course, we cannot deny that some people are gifted and do not need formal training to become masters, but let's take a look at Hunter Biden's artwork and you can judge for yourself how much you'd be willing to pay for such works. Democrat donor Elizabeth Neftali actually paid a premium for Hunter's work Of course, her money wasn't wasted. In July of 2022, eight months after Hunter Biden's artwork debuted at the Soho Gallery, Joe Biden appointed Naftali to the Commission on Preservation of U.S. Heritage Abroad. In addition, Naftali visited the Biden White House more than a dozen times and she met with senior advisors. Okay, this is our podcast for today. Thank you again for listening to Front Page Podcast. For more exclusive, in-depth content, please go to frontpageshow.com.